We're going to continue in our study of the attributes of God, and I don't know if any of you have taken the opportunity to look at the table of contents recently, but if you look at the table of contents in, in our study, you'll see at least two things. First, we're not far from the end. We are on week 40 of 47. The 48th chapter is, is just a list of uh, all of the various names of God and uses uh, in Scripture. So we don't have very much further to go. But also, we, if you pay attention to how it's laid out, we're quickly approaching several chapters at the end of this study which focus all of our attention on the revelation of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, this, this study uh, has been put together in such a way to make sure that it's not just a bare analysis of truths about God, but that, that all of these truths funnel us toward the premier revelation of God in the gospel. And, and really, if we're, if we're serious, any study of the attributes of God ought to do that. It ought to, to force us in the direction of the Son of God incarnate, making atonement for our sins in His death, His resurrection, His ascension, all of the work of Christ, because it's in the work of Christ that we see the, the most full and most vivid revelation of who God is. There are attributes of God that are not uh, most clearly seen in the mediatorial work of Christ, but yet when we see Christ in His work, we see the fullness of who God is most manifest. And so that's sort of where we're heading now, in, and you'll see that as, as the weeks unfold. But before we get to those, those what we might call gospel chapters... We have to consider the culmination of all of all that comes before that in God's role as lawgiver and judge. And so last week we began as to consider God as lawgiver. God is lawgiver. And we read from James 4.12, which states it very plainly and simply, there is only one lawgiver, and that is God. We saw that because of who God is, He is the only one qualified to be the lawgiver. We, we don't want anybody else to be a lawgiver. When men attempt to make laws apart from any relationship to uh, God's Word or, or a, at least a fundamental foundation in God, the, the morality that's given to us in God's Word, that's how we end up with unjust laws. God is the only one who's actually qualified to be the lawgiver. And we also saw that as the creator of men... God has given His law to all men. All men. No one, we could say all men are without excuse, or no one has an excuse before God. Listen to Romans 2. We read this last Lord's Day. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And he goes on to say, they show that the works, the work of the law is written on their heart, and, and their conscience will either excuse them or accuse them on the day of judgment. They, they will know on the day of judgment with their own conscience you knew that this was right or wrong, 
even though they didn't have what the nation of Israel had, a, a written code on, on tablets of stone and, or contained in, in uh, scrolls, the book of the law, they didn't have that. And yet they can't say, well, we didn't know. No, because God is creator, all men have the, at least the work of the law, that's the phrase Paul uses, written on their hearts. We call that, uh, that law, we call that natural law, written on the hearts of men. Uh, we, in our confession and in catechisms, you'll see phrases like the light of nature. Well, that's, that's the, the, the illumination that God gives to all men, that, that, that uh, gives them an understanding of certain things that are fundamental to being a human being. Now, we also heard and we, we confess that revelation of the law is insufficient for salvation, but they know right from wrong. God is the only lawgiver. He's given His law to all men. And all of the previous attributes that we've studied lead to and give a depth and a rationale to the concept of God and His law. For example, God is perfect, so His law is perfect. God is immutable, therefore His law never changes. God is good, so His law always produces good for those who obey it. Even unbelievers who will abide by the general principles of God's moral law, that's going to work out good for them in a carnal, temporal way. And we, we use the language of murder. Last Lord's Day, we, if you don't murder people, you're going to fare better in the long run in this life, temporally, than those who are murderers. If you are not a thief, well, you're probably going to fare better and, and on down the line. God's law is good. And so for those who order their lives by that law, it's going to work out good for them. God is kind. And so His law always issues in kindness between those who keep His law. If you're, if you're abiding by a, a strict, by-the-letter morality of, according to God's law, but you're not being kind... Well, there's something that you've missed in the law of God because the law of God actually produces a genuine kindness. Now, there is no commandment that says, thou shalt be kind. But if we follow the principles that God has given, especially summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself, well, I want people to be kind to me. If I'm not being kind, I'm not obeying God's law. There's some, something I've missed, but it will produce that in people. God is righteous. And so His laws are always right and just and equitable. We, we could go down the line. The law flows out of the lawgiver. Now following that same line of reasoning, because God is just, then He must uphold His law. He can't just give it and say, do what you want with it, I'm going to put this out there and I'm just going to stay back. No, He's just, which means He must uphold it. He must render uh, judgments, for those who break His law, because He's just. And that's what we're going to see in this chapter this evening, chapter 40, entitled, God is Judge. And so now I'll, I'll read from the workbook. It says, he begins with this, which is, it may seem like a small thing, but it's very important, according to the Scriptures. We confess the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience is the Scriptures, the Word of God. That's where we always begin. According to the Scriptures... God has revealed His will to all men and will judge all men according to the standard that has been revealed to them. Uh, just briefly, 
going back to what we said just a minute ago, we, we often struggle with the idea that people who may not have heard the gospel or may not have heard a revelation of God in, a, in, a, uh, in the form of a preacher or in scripture rated, and we think, well, surely they can't uh, be judged or punished. But the, the passage we read in Romans said, uh, those who are without the law, they sin without the law, what happens to them? They perish without the law. Those who are under the law, what happens to them? If they sin under the law, they perish under the law. All men are held uh, responsible for what they have received, and, and apart from Christ, they will perish. God has revealed His will to all men, and will judge all men according to the standard that has been revealed to them. All creatures can be assured that God will judge them according to the strictest standards of justice and fairness. It must always be recognized that God's judgment of man is not unwarranted or cruel, but an inevitable consequence of His holy and righteous character and a necessary part of His government. A God who would forego judging wickedness would not be good or righteous. And a creation where wickedness was not restrained and judged would soon self soon self-destruct. Think of the types of things that we see in the news today and the types of uh, criminal activity, especially if you, you pay attention, you'll see videos in, in certain cities where there are crimes taking place and there, there are no repercussions. Mobs of people can run into a store, take what they want, and run out. No repercussions. A, a, a group of men might run up to somebody and just... Uh, mug them, beat them to the ground, kick them, stomp them, hit them, hit them with something, and just leave. No repercussions. Now, when we watch that type of stuff, surely something in us says, that's not right. There needs to be justice. Something ought to happen. I even heard recently somebody said that in their mind, to be able to run into a store and take what they wanted was their form of receiving reparations. Right? Uh, to, to repair wrong done through the historical um, uh, slavery. Generations ago, people were slaves. We feel like our people were done wrong, so we're going to take, and this is how we'll get our payback. Well, even though that's wrong, what are they saying? We were mistreated, and we now want to be treated rightly. We want equity. We want it to be repaid back to us. We want the repair to be made. Everyone seeks justice. Rightly or wrongly, people, if they feel like they are being mistreated, they want it fixed. That's a part of being created in the image of God. We, we do desire, in some sense, justice in all of these types of situations. Deep within us, we all know that justice and judgment are right and good and necessary. The problem is, Often our ideas of justice are wrong, or they are misplaced, or they are self-serving. They're not the type of justice that we see from God. See, God is not that way. God's justice is perfect and righteous, so justice and judgment are good. These are not bad words. We don't have to, to say, well, some people have taken the, the concept of justice and they have distorted it, and so let's not just talk, let's not mention the concept of justice. That's that's a, a, a word that's abused in our culture. No, we say justice comes from God. Justice is good. They, they might distort it, but that doesn't mean that they, they just own the word now. No, we have to try to bring, back to, uh, bring people back to a right form of justice, which we see 
uh, in God. So the first heading that we have here is describing God as the omniscient observer. It's, we're going to return to an attribute of God, His omniscience, to see what makes Him such a, uh, a perfect judge. He says, in previous chapters we learned that God is both holy and righteous, and that these attributes stand as an eternal and immutable guarantee that His judgments will always be in accordance with the strictest rules of equity and justice. Before we consider the Bible's teaching regarding the judgment of God, we must review another divine attribute that is equally essential if His judgments are to be infallible. The omniscience of God. The word omniscience comes from a Latin word, sparing you the butchering of the language, and it denotes the attribute of possessing all knowledge. Omniscience. All knowledge. God possesses all knowledge. The omniscience of God means that He possesses perfect knowledge of everything without having to search out or discover the facts. He knows all things, past, present, and future, immediately, effortlessly, simultaneously, exhaustively. As I've, I've heard it put before, every possible fact that can be known, God knows all at once as if they were one indivisible speck of knowledge. He knows it completely. There's nothing hidden from God, He says. Every creature, deed, and thought is before Him like an open book. God not only knows all the facts, but He also interprets them with perfect wisdom and absolute fidelity. We, we might come to understand a fact, and then we just distort it just a little bit, misinterpret it and apply it wrongly. Never with God. God not only knows all the facts, but He interprets them with perfect wisdom and absolute fidelity. There's never the slightest difference between God's knowledge and reality. The omniscience of God not only proves that He is worthy to judge His creation, but it also guarantees that His judgments will always be perfect. God will always judge according to His perfect knowledge of all the facts. And this is where we go wrong. Very often, we make judgments when we don't have all of the facts because we are not omniscient. Many times we'll make a judgment, even if it's only mentally. We begin to, to lean in a certain direction before we have all of the facts. Even though we would say, I'm not omniscient. We'd all say that. I, I know I don't know everything. But if I see that the Taylorsville Times posts a picture of somebody online and they say this person is arrested and is being charged with, and I look at their picture, I immediately begin to lean towards guilty. They're guilty. That's not how the justice system works. That person's innocent. They haven't gone to court yet. That is an innocent person. But do our minds not begin to go that way? We're, we're not omniscient, but we, we do this. Proverbs 18 says that if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. See, we, we are often quick to make determinations without having all of the facts. And Scripture says that when we do that, we are just showing how foolish we are. That's shameful to act in that way. But with God, you see, he's not he doesn't have to come to the Proverbs and say, I can't make a judgment yet. I don't know all the facts yet. No, God, all, God knows all the facts. He's omniscient. He knows all things fully and perfectly. God has no need to hear the full story. He already knows it. God has no need to hear the other side. He already knows it. 
I've, I've said before, I, I didn't make this up, but I heard it from somebody else. It's an awful thin pancake that only has one side to it. God doesn't need to ha hear the other side. He already knows it. That shows, or this makes us out to be pretty pitiful judges, but with God, He's a perfect judge. So let's turn uh, to Job 37. Job 37, we'll begin to look at Scripture with, that, that show us God's omniscience. Job 37 and verse 16. Here we are seeing that God's knowledge is perfect. Job 37 verse 16. Do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? God is called Him who is perfect in knowledge. He says... In the note, the word is translated from the Hebrew word tamim, which denotes that which is whole, complete, entire, blameless, lacking nothing. So God's knowledge is whole, complete, entire, blameless, and it lacks nothing. He is perfect in knowledge. Then we see that God's understanding is infinite in Psalm 147. You can turn there with me. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 147, verses 4 and 5. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God's understanding is beyond measure. Translated from the Hebrew word ayin, the phrase denotes that which is innumerable or beyond counting. Other synonyms include endless, inscrutable, unfathomable and unsearchable. So God's knowledge, if we use these synonyms, God's knowledge or God's understanding is endless, inscrutable, unfathomable, unsearchable. Next, God's understanding is inscrutable. Turn to Isaiah 40, 28. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable or inscrutable. Inscrutable, to, to scrutinize, means to analyze down to the closest details. Inscrutable means you can't do that. You, you can't even begin to, to survey it or to analyze it. Impossible to understand or interpret. God's understanding, His knowledge is beyond our capacity to even begin to analyze because He knows all things. This is what Paul meant when he said in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? We, we don't know His mind. We cannot fathom what it means to be omniscient. 
but God is omniscient. Number two, the scriptures affirm that nothing exists outside of the reach of God's knowledge. He knows all things past, present, and future, immediately, effortlessly, simultaneously, and exhaustively. Such knowledge not only proves that He is worthy to judge His creation, but it also guarantees that His judgments will always be perfect. Let's turn back to Job 34. Job 34, verses 21 to 23. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further, that he should go before God in judgment. Every step of a man is already known to God from eternity. Nothing good or evil is hidden from God in, in any way, shape, or form. God does not need to call a meeting to make sure that He has all of the facts. All of the facts have been plain and clear to Him from everlasting. Let's look at the Proverbs. Proverbs 5. Several passages here. Proverbs 5.21 says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You can do nothing that hasn't already been known to God from eternity. All of the ways of men are before the eyes of God. Turn to Proverbs 15, verse 3. Proverbs 15.3 The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So not, it's not just the evil ones. We, we often harp on that. God sees all of the sin. God sees all of the evil. That is true. But He also sees all of the good. Not only the evil, but also the good are watched by God. Verse 11 of Proverbs 15 says, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord, how much more the hearts of the children of man. The heart. You see, God's knowledge is not limited to outward visible actions. We're like that. I, you could wear a green shirt and then somebody come to me and say, what color shirt do you wear? We wore a green shirt. I, I, I can know that. I can come to understand that by observation. But God is not that way. God doesn't have to observe something outwardly to know it. He knows even the hearts, the intentions, the thoughts, the will, just, just as easily as He knows our steps. He knows the outward things. I'll just read these. Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart, the mind. Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we, when we think of nakedness, usually we think of clothing. Clothing covers us. It keeps something from being seen. With God, all people in all parts, inwardly and outwardly, are exposed. We are naked. There's nothing covering us before God. Now when we read these texts like this, we, we read of God watching, of God looking, of God observing, of God searching with His eyes. These are 
These are not meant to, to say that God is like us, that I, I have to look at your green shirt before I recognize that it's green. But these are simply ways of referring to God's perfect, penetrating knowledge of all things using the language of men and, and anthropomorphism, using the way we function to try to describe something in God that we have already determined is inscrutable. We cannot comprehend it. God knows all things. He knows the inner parts of man, and that's where he goes in the next section. Again, we, we won't turn to all of these. I'll just read these texts, but I'll read what he writes there at number three. According to the Scriptures, there is no depth or secret in the heart of man that is beyond the reach of God's knowledge. 1 Kings 8.39, here, he's praying, Solomon's praying to God. Here in heaven your dwelling place. And forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God knows our hearts. Psalm 7 verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. Psalm 94.11, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. And Romans 2.16, On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now in those verses we have these phrases, the heart. The mind and heart, the thoughts of man, the secrets of men. God knows the inward just as much as the outward. It is no more difficult for God to know your thoughts than to know the color of your shirt. It, they, they are the same to Him. He knows them all because He knows all things. Number four says, In light of the Scriptures we've studied, explain how the omniscience of God not only proves that He is worthy to judge His creation, but also acts as a guarantee that His judgment will always be perfect. Well, God is omniscient. Therefore, God does not need to collect and then weigh evidence in anybody's case. He doesn't need to hear testimonies. He doesn't have to navigate the honesty or dishonesty of witnesses. You might have a group of witnesses all come like our Lord Himself. Well, they're still fallible men. Two, two or three witnesses can lie. Well, God doesn't have to say, do I, do I believe this person's telling the truth or not? God doesn't have to make a case before a jury of His peers. God doesn't have to refer back to legal precedents or appeal to a constitution or a, a higher ruler or law standard besides Himself. God knows all things perfectly and fully, and He's perfectly righteous, and therefore He will judge accordingly and perfectly. He is the only one suitable to be the judge. He is the omniscient observer. That leads to the second main heading. God is the divine judge. I'll read that paragraph there. He says, Having reviewed the omniscience of God, we will now consider His place as judge of all. The Scriptures teach us that God is a holy, righteous, and loving sovereign who cares for the well-being of His creation. 
Such a sovereign must administer justice, rewarding the good and punishing the evil. Because of God's holiness, righteousness, and omniscience, all creatures can be assured that He will judge them according to the strictest standards of justice and fairness. Again, it must always be recognized that God's judgment of man is not unwarranted or cruel, but an inevitable consequence of His holy and righteous character and a necessary part of His government. And we've already read this. A God who would forgo judging wickedness would not be good or, or righteous. A creation where wickedness was not restrained and judged would soon self-destruct. That, that is helpful for us to keep in mind even as we look at our world. And we might see many places where there's absolute chaos. And we might even look at those who are in authority who are governing. And we might say, you guys are doing an absolutely terrible job in many situations. Just the very presence of some sort of government, some sort of restraint, is restraining far more sin and destruction than we understand. It would be far worse if there were pure anarchy with no restrictions. We should be thankful to God for that. Now, he said there, such a sovereign must administer justice. Now, is that placing some sort of outside obligation upon God? God, you, you have to do this now. No. As he said, it is simply the inevitable consequence of his holy and righteous character. This is not an external obligation placed upon God. This is who God is applied. Because of who he is, he must judge. Executing judgment is simply what it means to be God. So several weeks ago we said to say that God is sovereign is simply to say that God is God. Now we can say to say that God is judge, that's just to say that God is God. It's who he is. If there is a God, he must judge. Let's turn to Genesis 18.25. We're going to see here some titles or names given to God that prove Him to be judge from the Word of God. We'll see one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, Genesis 18.25. We're going to come back to this and read the whole verse. I won't read it right now. But in Genesis 18.25, God... Or Abraham is speaking to God, and he says there in the last sentence of the verse, he refers to God as the judge of all the earth. The judge of all the earth. Reading the note, the word judge is translated from the Hebrew word shafat, which means to judge, govern, or render a decision. It is important to note that God does not have a limited jurisdiction. He will give the final verdict for every human being upon the earth. He's the judge of all the earth. Now flip to the other, the other end of your Bibles in Hebrews 12. Just to see that this is a truth that spans the Scriptures. Hebrews 12.23 refers to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. God is the judge of all. 
The word judge is translated from the Greek word krites, which comes from the verb krino, which means to judge or decide. Again, the emphasis is that God's jurisdiction has no spatial or temporal limitations. He will judge all creatures in the heavens and on the earth. There is no place or creature beyond His jurisdiction and no statute of limitations. A statute of limitations is defined as a statute or a rule prescribing a period of limitation for the bringing of a certain kind of legal action. So a a statute of limitations might say, well, if you're going to bring this particular legal action, it must be within 30 days of the crime or you have to just let it go. With God, there is no statute of limitations. There's no, nothing restraining Him to say, well, if you didn't act in a certain amount of time, then you don't have the option. You, you, you forego your judging privileges. No, God knows all things fully and He never forgets anything. He never forgets anything. So while judgment might be withheld for a time by God's patience as He allows Sinners to come to salvation. God's judgment cannot be avoided. It is His name to judge. He is judge of all the earth. When you pray, you can pray to Him and address Him in that way. Judge of all the earth. And He will know who you're talking about. Because that's who He is. If God does not judge all men then he must hand over his prerogative as God and judge to somebody else. Of course, we know that's impossible. He must judge. Number two, he says, the above titles reveal God to be judge of all. Now we will consider two titles that reveal something of his integrity. Integrity is defined as the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, the state of being whole and undivided. So when we say that a man or a woman is a man or a woman of integrity, what we're saying is with regard to their overall character, there are no glaring, persistent uh, moral deficiencies. Their character is whole or complete morally. That doesn't mean we're saying that he or she is perfect, but that they're consistent, they're honest, they're trustworthy, they're unwavering. We'd say that's a person of integrity. Well, with God, obviously, that trait is amplified to a a holy and perfected condition beyond anything that we could comprehend. But this is also what makes God such a perfect judge. The first title that we see here is the righteous judge from Psalm 711. You can turn there. Psalm 7 and verse 11. which says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Or you you might have, He is angry with the wicked every day. As long as the wicked persist, God's anger persists. Now we typically think, well, one of these days God will come and render judgment. He'll throw some in hell and the rest will go to heaven and there and God's anger will go away. Well then what is going to stoke the flames of hell for all of eternity if not God's anger? As long as the wicked persist and exist, God's anger will be poured out upon them. His indignation towards sin and sinners never ceases. 
or tapers off. It never weakens. He doesn't have days of low anger and days of high anger. If for one day God's attitude towards sin was changed, He would no longer be a God of perfection and righteousness. But He is the righteous judge. And His righteousness never takes a break. And then we see in the New Testament, you don't have to turn to this one, but 2 Timothy 4.8 gives the same title, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Again, God is called the righteous judge. There have been many judges, and many of them have been very unrighteous. Even the best of them would be uh, would be unrighteous in an absolute sense. Many of them have been completely and totally unrighteous. We, we, it wasn't long ago, we, and even recently, we have political figures who die, and we look at their record, and we say, these are some of the most unrighteous, vile, wicked people who have ever lived. Just because a person is in a place of judgment doesn't mean that they are righteous, but God, He is the righteous judge. In Psalm 711, the word comes from the Hebrew word tzaddik, which denotes righteousness or blamelessness. In 2 Timothy 4.8, it comes from the Greek word dikaios, which denotes righteousness, correctness, and innocence. On the day of judgment, God will be blameless in all His judgments. As Moses declared, the rock, His work is perfect, for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice Righteous and upright is He. There is no injustice in God. Not now and not for eternity. When we talk about making that point that, uh, there, there's, that God's judgment will be blameless, you, you probably hear or may, may come across the, the various disputations about Christian or biblical political theory and what is what is the right way for a nation to be governed and and there was one extreme would be the, the full mosaic uh, law as well as the penal, the, the penal codes uh, theonomy then there's the other side that might say well you know we should govern by some general Christian principles but there are some things that shouldn't be enforced and and no matter how much a human society seeks to implement some sort of of biblical order, we are going to fail. There's going to be somewhere where we, we don't render a punishment that is actually due to the crime. The, the crime, because it is a sin against God, we cannot render an infinite and eternal punishment for that crime like God can. We will always fall short, is my point. When God judges in the end, there will be no question. No one, even the wicked, will say, I think you've gone too far here. We say that now, right? And, and unbelievers will say that. How, how could it possibly be just that to live a life of 60 or 70 or 80 years of sin is, is worthy of an eternity of punishment? That's not just. On that day, they will say, you're exactly right. It is perfect. It is just. On the day of judgment, God will be blameless in all His judgments. So He's, he's the righteous judge. Isaiah 30, verse 18 is the next passage. You can turn there with me. Isaiah 30. 
and verse 18. This is one of those verses that if you don't have highlighted or underlined or put on a sticky note somewhere that you can read it regularly, you should read this verse every day if you could. Isaiah 30 verse 18, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. The note says that this is from the Hebrew word mishpat, which the word denotes justice. as coming from a judge, a lawgiver, a king. God's rule is just. His laws are just. His judgments are just. Justice marks all aspects of God's government. He is a God of justice. That means that justice characterizes all of His godness. The foundations of His throne are righteousness and justice. It's who He is, the God of justice. Now what do these names reveal? Well, we learn from these names, the righteous judge and a God of justice, that God must judge because He's righteous, and His judgments will be perfect because He's just. And, 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 and we could flip that around and say God must judge because He's just. And all of His judgments will be perfect because He's righteous. We, we can't get away from this. No fault can be found in God. He would be weak on sin if He did not judge. And He would be a tyrant if He judged, but it wasn't righteous judgment. Thanks be to God, He's more just and more righteous than we can fathom. Number three takes us back to Genesis 18.25, and this time we'll read that whole verse. Genesis 18.25. These passages affirm the righteousness and fairness of God's judgment. Genesis 18.25. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And if we think about it, Abraham is not a man who's holding a, a copy of the 66 books of the canonical scriptures. He does this study and he says, no, wait a second, this says that you're just. You're just. No, Abraham knew with what little interaction and revelation he had from God, Abraham knew God of all the earth, judge of all the earth, must do what is right. These two things must coincide. And this goes back to what we saw before, that even fallen men and even the wicked know that there ought to be justice. Fallen men know that the wicked and the righteous should not receive the same treatment. How much more so the God who created all men. God can and will only do what is just. Let's turn to Psalm 96. The psalm that we began to sing. Psalm 96, verses 10 to 13, which we'll sing when we get done. 
Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. I won't read that whole note, but he gives several words and several uh, synonyms of the various words that are used here. But if we, if we compound all of these terms together, God's character, which will be displayed in His judgment, get this, God's character, which will be displayed in His judgment, is described as evenness, fairness, uprightness, rightness, accuracy, fairness, steadfastness, honesty, and fidelity. That's God's judgment. Now how often, children, how often do you say, that's not fair? Oh, you like fairness? Oh, you'd love God. God, His character is a character of perfect equity and fairness, of uprightness, of steadfastness, of evenness in His judgment. And, and if you notice the tenor of this psalm, it changes almost the entire way we think about judgment, or it should. <clears throat> notice what it said, or the part that we, we read. Verse 11. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then all the trees of the forest, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. Why? For he comes to judge the earth. These are pictures of exuberant joy and gladness. Excitement beyond imagination. Why? Because God's coming to judge. Now, why would all of creation rejoice with ecstatic praise and jubilant happiness at the coming of a judge? Usually when we hear judge and judgment, we begin to take a few steps back. Why, why would there be such a celebration? Because He judges with equity and righteousness and in faithfulness. His judgment is good. His judgment brings gladness. God's judgment to the created world, which has been subjected to uh, decay and futility because of our sin, and to the saints of the Most High, His judgment is something that we look forward to. We don't step back in fear. We ought to step forward and say, let's rejoice. He's coming. It should not be a scary notion to us. The day of judgment will be the day of our vindication and our deliverance, so we ought to be glad. We ought to rejoice. We ought to roar. We ought to exult. We ought to sing and shout with joy before the Lord because He's coming to judge. And the last text is Isaiah 5.16, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows Himself holy in righteousness. A day is coming when God's justice will be manifest before all creation. And we know this because a day has already been where His justice was manifest 
before a small portion of creation. As Jesus Christ hung on the cross, the just in the place of the unjust, and our sins received their due penalty in His body, God was showing us that He does not overlook sin. There there has already been a, a small judgment day for the people of God. Our judgment day in that sense for our sins has already come. If you're a Christian, your sins have been judged. And they have been judged with perfect equity, perfect justice. There is no injustice in God. He will never require any payment for any sin from your hands. It's already done. Justice has already been served in your case. And so for us, we can rejoice in Christ and we can be glad. And we we don't have to be afraid when we get to the last portions of our Bible and, and we want to pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. We don't have to be afraid of that. That's our Savior. That's our, that's our elder brother coming to vindicate us and to redeem us, to rescue us. But we can be glad. We can pray that. Come and judge the world. Come and set all things right. And we can rejoice in His judgment. So with that, let's stand. And I won't close in prayer. We'll close in song. And this will be our, our prayer, as it were. We'll finish singing Psalm 96, verses 10 to 13, to the tune of a worship.